Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially. You can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Today, delivering to us God's word and the next step of the healthy rhythms and practices in our walk with Jesus as we come to him is a close friend of mine who is probably the best one to teach us about a godly and biblical view of Sabbath rest. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage today a friend, a mentor, and quite frankly, Pastor Cameron's father-in-law, our pastor and our friend, Steve Trinkle. Well, I am uh, humbled by that introduction, but also grateful to be here. So thank you for the privilege and opportunity. If you brought a Bible this morning or a tablet or a phone or whatever you use to read the Word of God, if you'll turn to Matthew 11 or thumb or tab or swipe or whatever you do to get there. I've, uh, I've enjoyed listening to the messages on Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Uh, and I've been encouraged by uh, your pastors in bringing to life the spiritual practices that enable the Word of God to, to sort of flourish in our lives as we walk in obedience. <clears throat> I want to give kind of a quick reminder uh, at, at this point about spiritual practices. Uh, worship prayer, fasting, serving others, stewarding God's stuff, uh, doing those things doesn't automatically make us followers of Jesus. In fact, doing stuff has nothing to do with becoming a follower of Jesus. We are saved by grace through faith upon our confession that Jesus is Lord. It's not based on anything that we do. You don't come to a saving knowledge of Christ through effort, and you don't remain in that relationship that is secure for all of eternity by doing stuff. Uh, Jesus alone alone saves and keeps those who place their trust fully uh, in him. And so spiritual practices that, that Dustin and some of the others have been talking about for several weeks, it's not another way to say a performance based salvation. There is no such thing as a performance-based salvation. Uh, So if if you haven't come to faith in Christ, if you haven't yet placed your faith and trust in Him and confessed Him as your Savior and Lord, you you may derive some temporary benefits from some of the practices and disciplines that they've been talking about, but it's not going to be anything that transfers into eternity. Uh, Practicing the disciplines of faith is pretty pointless unless you have the faith unless you have a faith relationship with God in Jesus Christ. You won't be able to stand before the great white throne of heaven one day and say, Jesus, I read your word, I meditated on it, I served in a soup kitchen, I stewarded the stuff that you gave me, and hear him say, well, you performed quite admirably, come on in. That's not how that works. And so first things first, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ to save you from your sin and separation, uh, you can do that today. At the end of the service, there'll be an opportunity for you to talk to someone who can explain uh, to you how you can have your sins forgiven, how you can come into a relationship with God in Christ Jesus. And and I think your your pastors have done a good job during this series uh, reminding us 
again, that spiritual disciplines are not a system of performance-based acceptance. Uh, we're never our performance. We're always who God says we are. And God accepts us on the basis of Christ Jesus, not on how well we perform or don't perform. And we understand that concept a little bit from children in our own families. Uh, When children showed up in our house, we were excited. We loved them and accepted them into the family. Was their performance always what we had in mind? No, it wasn't. And so we disciplined and guided to bring that performance in line with, with who they were and how we felt like we were tasked from the Lord to raise them up. So we can be accepted by the Lord, and yet we can still perform poorly. The New Testament says we can grieve the Holy Spirit when I sin, when my action doesn't match up to my identity of who I am in Christ. It, it grieves the Holy Spirit. Uh, likewise, when I walk in obedience... Father is pleased, and I know his pleasure in my life from his being pleased with my obedience. So if you're a follower of Jesus, it means that at some point you responded to this invitation that we've been talking about several, for several weeks now, when Jesus says, come to me. And when you first heard that, it means the Holy Spirit opened your eyes to the sin and separation in your life, and God drew you to himself, and you made the confession that Jesus is Lord. And upon that confession... 2 Peter 1.3 says, He then granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And what that means is that upon your confession of faith, you got everything of Jesus that you will ever receive. There's, there's no advancing to the next level. There, there is but one level. And so if you confess Christ as Lord, you are his always being loved child, his forever accepted child. But the invitation of Jesus isn't simply come to me, it's come to me and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And so this journey of faith that we're on is this lifelong process of appropriating everything pertaining to life and godliness and bringing that online in our lives, bringing that into the scene and temporal realm so that we begin to develop into the kind of followers that God has in mind from the beginning. And for this series, we've called these the spiritual practices. Now, I think sometimes we look at spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices on a, on a spectrum. And at one end of the spectrum is the exhausted pilgrim uh, viewpoint, which is, I, I'm so tired, I can't possibly do one more thing. And at the other end of the spectrum is the, I can do anything better than you can, uh, Christian, who sees spiritual disciplines as obstacles to be conquered so that they can become a superior follower of Jesus. And probably most of us fall in in sort of the in-between, in the middle there. Um, But I I thought I would, would try to use an example to help you see what I'm talking about here. Uh, I'm not a golfer, and you will soon recognize that, those of you who golf. How many of you have never played golf and don't golf? Bless you. You are the wise ones in the room, and I commend you for that. Uh, Years ago, I played a little more golf than I do now, but it, it dawned on me that the goal of golf is to hit the ball as few times as possible. That's The best golfers hit it less than anybody else does. Well... I started realizing that 
It only took me 10 holes to par a course. I shot par after 10 holes, and so I went home. And then I thought, you know what? I can leave those sticks in the closet, and I will be the perfect golfer. You know, no strokes at all. Well, I think it's been 25 years. We were trying to remember this morning after the first service. Steve Young invited me to uh, join him and Dan Coombs and maybe a couple other folks at one of the community golf tournaments. Uh, It's a best ball tournament. You know what that means. It means that everybody hits a ball, and whoever has the best shot, then everybody hits their second shot from that point. And so my job in the foursome was to drive the cart and to say, good shot, we'll hit from here. Uh, And then they let me putt occasionally. But also in these golf tournaments, there was a meal, uh, you know, barbecue or something like that, and a time to hang out and and have a good time. And uh, there were door prizes. And so uh, at one of these tournaments, I won the door prize, and it was a golf lesson. And... (laughs) And the guys thought, that's for you. You need to go do that. And so I showed up for this free golf lesson. I'm very excited. And uh, the guy says, okay, well, let me see your swing. And so I showed him. He said, okay, we, can, we got a lot to do here. And so he said, now I want, you to, I want you to to take that golf club, let the sole of the club rest on the ground. I want you to hold it. And there's kind of a, a V-shaped grip here, and it's going to point to this right shoulder. And I want you to take your, your right hand. And I want you to overlap. You know, it just feels real natural to hang your finger over the edge of that like that. He said, now I want you to bend your knees slightly. Your feet are shoulder width apart. Your heels are kind of pointing to the target. You want to keep your left arm straight. And uh, you're going to pull back slowly. And you're going to rotate your hips. You're going to transfer your weight from your front foot to your back. Your wrists are going to break. Which he meant they do this, which was reassuring. Your wrists are going to break. The club is going to be parallel to the ground. And then you're going to follow through. You're keeping your eye on the ball. Your weight shifts. Your torso turns. You hit the ball. He said, okay, you got that? He said, all right, now do all those things. Left arm straight, knees bent, feet shoulder width apart. Now just swing naturally. (laughs) There wasn't anything natural about that. I couldn't move. I, I wasn't sure what to do at all. You know, I think we hear spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices and we think, this is a bunch of stuff that I have to do. And so I have to keep my eye on the Word and I have to keep my feet planted for service and my knees bent in worship and I'm stewarding the resource that God gave me and, and I'm, I'm straight on with this and I'm doing all this stuff and now just swing easily, naturally, and I, I can't do it. It's... I'm paralyzed by all the stuff. Most of us have seen a professional golfer. And if you've ever seen one in person, it's like poetry. It looks effortless. Those guys get up and they hit that ball. It looks smooth and natural and the ball just soars and sails. And it's because they've spent tens of thousands of hours hitting balls, and practicing swings. And they have developed something called muscle memory. Now, what if you had the muscle memory of Rory McIlroy or of Phil Mickelson? What if that muscle memory could be imparted to you as part of your golf lesson? Think of the confidence you would have. Think how natural and easy it would be for you to swing that golf club and hit that ball. Jesus said, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. 
And at first, the Christian life is so disorienting. It's like stepping into this golf stance that is so foreign and feels so unnatural. And if we're not careful, we tend to make the Christian life about all the stuff we feel like we need to do in order to perform our Christian duty. And again, I think we appear at various points on the spectrum of this, but the entire spectrum misses the point of what it means to come to Jesus. And that's why we need to be attentive to the part of the invitation where Jesus says that the easy yoke and the light burden becomes operable in our lives as we learn from him. I love this passage, Matthew, 20, Matthew 11, 28 through 30, in the message translation, Eugene Peterson's translation. I want you to listen as Patty reads that to us this morning. He has some words and phrases that, that kind of bring this to life for us. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. In Christ, the spiritual practices has become the unforced rhythms of grace. It's like there is a spirit that indwells us, a spiritual muscle memory, if you will, that enables these disciplines to become part of this easy life relationship that we've been called into, that Jesus has done all the heavy lifting already, and now we step into this yoke alongside him. They're not a burdensome list of the stuff that we have to do. Now they're our response to grace. And so we see in the spiritual practices and the, the disciplines, this is how God has designed abundant life to f- operate and to flourish in those that he has called to himself as he conforms us to the image of his son. And, and so with that in mind, we're going to look at today's practice and, and considering this idea of rest and Sabbath rest Because Jesus says, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you leave today, there's going to be a handout uh, with just some excellent suggestions on Sabbath rest. And there's a QR code there that you can you can scan with your phone. It'll take you to a link to a, a, a lengthy article uh, and some suggestions on personal spiritual retreat and, and choosing Sabbath, uh, some options for creating rest areas in busy lives. But I, I want us to note this morning that rest as a spiritual practice begins with an awareness of the rest that is already ours in Christ. And so before we we go on, I want us to back up and look at verse 25 of Matthew 11. And I want you to listen as Patty reads this as well. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. 
All these things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Did you catch that last sentence? No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The invitation of Jesus is, come to me, take up my yoke, learn from me. Allow me to reveal the Father to you. Several years ago, I had the honor to uh, conduct the memorial service for a dear saint at our SIM village. And uh, I asked her daughters, could I use her Bible uh, as part of this message? I want to see what what she underlined, what she wrote in the margin notes and that sort of thing. And uh, it was a life of faith well lived and, and her Bible was well worn. But in the front of the Bible, there was a verse reference, Matthew, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29. I wasn't familiar with the verse. She hadn't written it out. She just had that. And so I turned to, to this verse. And Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of the law. The message translation says, the revealed things are our business. God doesn't hold us responsible for what we don't know. But he invites us to learn from the master teacher. And then the things that have been revealed to us, they become Ours. They become what we're to do, how we're to respond to grace. And so Jesus is saying in this invitation, come to me, learn from me, and I will reveal myself to you. I will show myself to you. I will reveal all you need to know in order to live this life that I've called you to live. And I will reveal to you that true rest is only found in me. Now, I think it's hard for most of us to hear the word rest and not think feeling rested or not think not feeling exhausted. And obviously, as humans, we require physical rest. But feeling rested and knowing the deep spiritual rest of being in Christ are two different things. We can know the rest of Jesus We can know the rest that Jesus is, even in the middle of the exhausting seasons of life. Well, what we know about God changes how we live. Would you agree with that? What we know about God changes or determines how we live. And it's what we know that enables us to recognize and enter the rest that Jesus is and the rest that is ours, and then to live from that rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And the implication in that invitation is this. The moment we come to Jesus confessing him as Lord, he gives us rest. The very moment. The rest is ours the moment we make the confession that Jesus is Lord. Hebrews 4.3 says, For we who have believed enter that rest. 
Later on in that same chapter in Hebrews 4, the writer coins a word. The English is Sabbath rest. Uh, It's the only place in the New Testament where the word appears. But he wants us to know that the rest that is ours in Christ is the rest of God himself. That after six days of creating the world, God rested on the Sabbath. And he rested because everything was good. It was done. It was complete. And the rest that is ours in Christ, the Sabbath rest, is God's stamp on our life that says it's done. It's complete. There's no striving. There's no more for you to do to be fully accepted and be part of this forever family. But if the rest is already mine as a confessing believer of Jesus, how come I don't feel more rested? Again, some of our unrest is that we don't make space in our lives for physical rest. We, we just try to do too much too often. And again, I think the handout will have some good suggestions on how to build in some, some space for rest. Uh, but rest doesn't seem productive. It's certainly not entertaining at times. And that really was my philosophy when I was this age. But now that I'm this age, I'm into rest. I don't get enough of it, I think. I'm, I have a different viewpoint on that. But, but I think some of our misunderstanding of spiritual rest is ignorance. We don't understand the nature of spiritual rest, the rest that Jesus is, and the rest that is ours when we are in him. Well, several years ago, Patty and I were in seminary in Fort Worth. And by several, I mean 40, which is hard to imagine. <clears throat> And uh, some good friends of ours from Florida, were, we were in school at the same time, and they invited us to their church. They said there's a spiritual life conference uh, for Monday through, uh, Sunday through Wednesday this week at our church, and it's being taught by Bill and Annabelle Gillum. And uh, we, we've heard they're really good, and so come and, and listen. And so we did. And uh, it was some of the most disorienting teaching I had ever heard, and it wasn't until about the third night, the end of the whole conference, that I thought, okay, this makes sense. To me. Uh, well, about 10 years later, Bill Gillum put that seminar into a book. The book is called Lifetime Guarantee. Uh, I think it's one of the top 10 books that every Christian ought to read. It's just a powerful story of what it means to live this victorious Christian life. <clears throat> but at the seminar and in the book, he tells a story of a bear. And um, to, to illustrate uh, some of what we're talking about in, in spiritual rest and, and what we know about God changing how we live. And he said, I want you to imagine with me that on your bucket list was to hike the backcountry of Yellowstone National Park. And uh, so you go, you check in with the ranger's office and uh, you get your backcountry permit. And if, if you've ever done that, it's a spectacular place. It's just a remarkable scenery. And uh, they probably ask you now, uh, again, a long time ago when we, I was there, this wasn't even an offering, but I think they probably ask you now if you have bear spray. And so let's just assume that bear spray at a national park costs 50 to $75, and you don't want to spend that. And you say, well, I don't think I could spray a bear anyway. And they say, well, good luck, and we have your next of kin information, and so we'll let them know. And so you head off into the back country and you're enjoying the scenery of God's creation. It's spectacular. And you come over a little rise and there's kind of a meadow down in front of you. And about 50 yards away, there is a very large grizzly bear. And uh, the moment you see him, he sees you. Now, at that point, your brain may have all kind of bear facts that it could offer up. 
Uh, I saw a bear at a zoo one time. Uh, last November, Patty and I had a bear on our back porch. That was no fun. Uh, bears are omnivores, which means they eat plants and people. Uh, bears, grizzly bears particularly, range from five to eight feet when they're standing up, and they can weigh up to 900 pounds. And remarkably, they can run 30 miles an hour. Now, your brain may know all of those things about bears. Winnie the Pooh was a bear. Your, your brain has all kind of bear information. But at this point, your brain is not functioning because your emotions have taken over. And your emotions are saying, bears eat meat, we're meat, let's go. Now, the brain is saying, we can't outrun the bear. He runs 30 miles an hour. And the feelers say, we don't care. Let's run while we're thinking of something else. And so you turn around and you begin to run as fast as you can. And you head off through the woods, and all of a sudden there's a little clearing, and there is a cabin that you see, and it's overgrown by vines, and, and you can't really tell much about it. But the bear is gaining on you, and you decide, this cabin looks like my only option. And so as you dash through the door and slam the door and drop the bar into the cradle on the other side, the bear smacks up against that door, but he doesn't get in. Now, what you don't know at this point is that you are safe. It's a log cabin. It's got timber beam rafters. It's covered by a two-inch oak and a steel roof. The bear cannot get in the cabin. The windows are just high slits. You are safe in the cabin. You don't know that. You are on the back wall doing your imitation of wallpaper. <laughs> and you could have a stroke and die because your emotions are still telling you, we're going to get eaten, we're going to get eaten, we're going to get eaten. But the truth is, you're safe in the cabin. So that's the first thing. You're safe in the cabin. The second thing that comes online is you believe the truth. The truth is I'm safe in the cabin. And so I think that I really am safe. And your mind helps peel your body off the back wall and you begin looking around. You're going, this seems like a really solid, well-built place. I'm going to believe the truth that I am safe in the cabin. Now, emotionally, you're still a wreck. You can feel your heartbeat. It, it is just pounding away because you narrowly escaped death. But in spite of how you're feeling at that point, your will can make the choice to act on the information it has. One, I'm safe in the cabin. I believe that I'm safe. And now I will act like a safe person. I still don't feel especially safe. But the truth is I'm safe. I believe that I'm safe. I will act now like a safe person. And after a while of acting like a safe person, my emotions finally admit, okay, I feel a little safer. They still may not come fully on board. But the truth is, you're safe in the cabin. It's not what we feel about God that determines how we live. We do not authorize our feelings to think for us. We do not make decisions with our feelings. It is what we know about God that changes the way we live. 
And so Jesus invites us into this relationship where he says, come and walk with me and learn from me. And I'm going to show myself to you and I'm going to teach you the unforced rhythms of grace. Learn from me. And as you learn from me, you will find rest for your souls. Well, coming to Jesus and learning from him enables us to an endless number of truths about what it means to rest. But I want us to consider three as we finish up this morning. And the first one is this. We rest in our security in Christ. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness. The moment we confess Jesus as Lord, we can then rest in the security that is ours. In spite of the times that we may feel far away, in spite of the times when the circumstances of our life may be trying to tell a different story, we can rest in what we know to be true, that Jesus holds us in the palm of his hand and no one can snatch us away. In John 10, he says, My sheep know me, they hear my voice, they follow me, I give to them eternal life, no one can snatch them out of my hand. And the Father who is greater than all holds us and and no one can snatch them from his hand. And so what we have learned from Jesus, from being yoked together with him, is that we are accepted, we are holy, we are blameless, we are his always being loved children. Those are the true things about us. We can rest in the security of the true things that we know, regardless of how we may be feeling on any particular day. And from the security of his yoke, where the yoke is easy and the burden is light, we learn to cease striving and we begin to learn the unforced rhythms of grace. So that the walk of faith is a natural response offered back to this God who loves us and cares for us. So that we're able to interpret now all the things around us. It's not that this is good for me or this is bad for me. This is God for me. This is what God has for me this day. And I will press hard into him because I know that he will never leave me or forsake me. I know that he holds me securely in the palm of his hand. So whatever turmoil I may be feeling will not override what I know to be true. This God who offers me rest in Christ. We can also rest in the freedom of our forgiveness. Colossians 2.13 says he has forgiven us all our sins, all our trespasses, past, present, and future. You know, we were children. We played a game. We'd walk on the sidewalk, and we would say, step on a crack, break your mother's back. What a horrible thing. I I can't believe we did that. But when you played that game, where was your focus? You were trying not to step on the cracks, right? Your focus was down here. You could walk out into the street and get hit by a truck. You could step into a tree. There are any number of things that could happen because you just didn't want to step on the crack. Living from the freedom of our forgiveness enables us to raise our eyesight, raise our vision to what God has out here. Because it's no longer just about me. It's no longer about my best life now. It's no longer about I'm trying to be the best kind of Christian I am so God will keep me on the team. Because I am totally forgiven in Christ Jesus, now I can look up and out, which points us to the third reason we can rest in Christ. And that is we can rest in Jesus because he is our needs met. Paul writes to the Philippians, My God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And when we know that, 
when we know that our needs are met in him, now it frees us up to be for others. Now we can be about what makes us the church. You look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, it was a life for others. His life in the us, his Holy Spirit indwelling us will be no different. It will be a life that is for others, that is lived in the direction of others. Because we know, we are confident of his great love for us. And now we can spend and be spent on behalf of those who have yet to come to faith in Christ. Resting in Jesus as our needs met enables us to be about the work that we've been called to as the church. To bear witness to the truth of the gospel and to make disciples of all nations. God's rest that is ours is not inactivity. We're participants in this. We practice the spiritual disciplines. We do it individually so that we can hear God's voice, so that collectively we can be about the work that he has called us to do in this community and around the world. And we practice what is already ours in Christ. The best picture of the year in 1981 was the movie Chariots of Fire. It's the story of Eric Little, who is a Scottish uh, missionary, actually, who ran in the 1924 Olympics in Paris. Uh, the, the big news of, of that story is that his best event was the 100 meters, and the heats were held on, the, on a Sunday, and he wouldn't run. He opted to step out of that uh, because he didn't want to run on the Sabbath. He felt strongly about that. Instead, he ran the 400 meters, which was not his best event, but he set a world record, and he got the gold medal for that. And in the movie, there, there's a scene where his sister, who is just badgering him, you've got to get to China, you've got to get back to the work God has called you to. This is what he has called you to, to be and do. And Eric Little says, I know that God called me for a purpose. I know that he made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. God has called us to himself. He has uniquely gifted each one of us to be a one-of-a-kind expression of the life of Christ. He has placed a spiritual gift in your life. He invites you into this yoke where you will learn the unforced rhythms of grace. And as we walk in that and what we've been created in Christ to do, we feel his pleasure. Take some time this week, make some space, listen for the voice of the Father, and step into the unforced rhythms of grace. It changes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We bless your name. We thank you for all you are and all you've done to ensure that we know life that is both abundant and eternal. And this day, we thank you that we do not have to strive to please you. Instead, we simply walk in obedience to this invitation and out of this relationship based on the acceptance that is ours in Christ Jesus, you will pour into us that very life so that it finds a unique expression in and through us to the community around us. Father, I thank you for this household of faith. I thank you for the impact they are in our community and beyond. And I pray that this week the unforced rhythms of grace will find a way into our lives, through our lives, and impact this community for the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.